It's four in the morning, and you've been called in to monitor the pressure of a few valves of a top-secret engine test. You're wondering to yourself, damn, I miss my bed, as you're drinking your fourth cup of coffee, staring at the control panel in front of you. But then it starts. The ground begins to rumble, and the pens in your pencil case begin to dance. You look up from the panel. Your eyes are met with the glorious blue and orange plumes that seem to be cascading down the two larger sides of a structure, the shape of a trapezoidal prism. Completely different than any standard rocket engine you've worked with before. All those feelings of sleep deprivation vanish as you look in awe at the magnificent beast that is in front of you. This beast is the Linear Aerospike Engine. That was a really impressive monologue you just gave us. Thanks, Anna. What were you talking about? I was talking about, this was just a story to set the mood, you know? So it's fictional? So fictional. It's an original piece? I'm sure there are people out there who have been in this situation before monitoring some cool engine tests. Oh, I'm completely sure. But I was just complimenting your really good writing. Oh, thank you very much. I was impressed. Yeah. So how have you been? I've been good, Anna. Can't yeah. complain. Yeah, can't, day, complain. can't complain. I'm sitting with you, and we get to talk about some fun stuff. What more can we ask for? It hasn't started raining yet today. Yeah, that's which true. Is pretty impressive if it, you looked at our weather forecast for the weekend. Yeah, <laughs> I got some tasty coffee with me. What more can you ask for? What more can you ask for? How are you doing, Anna? I'm good. So yeah. I was standing in line to donate blood a couple weeks ago. Uh huh. And the guy in front of me was playing Solitaire. And I was like, darn, that looks really fun. Yeah. So I downloaded Solitaire. I haven't played Solitaire in years. Yeah, me neither. Um, <laughs> I don't think a lot of people have. <laughs> I cannot stop. Oh, my Anytime gosh. Anytime I have a spare five minutes, I pull out Solitaire. Like, you and my mom, Anna. <laughs> and, like, so Solitaire... You can get a random deal, but the thing is not... I don't... I meant to look up, like, what percentages of solitaire deals you can win, but not all of them are winnable. Yeah. But you can get a... Um, you can ask in the, like, whatever solitaire app you download from the app store to give you a winning deal, which just means it is winnable. And if I can't win it, I lose my mind, and I have to replay it and replay it and replay it and figure out how to win. Ah, uh, the competitive side of Anna. Me versus this <laughs> free app I bought off <laughs> the internet. Robot. So that's how I'm doing. That's great. The height of excitement. You know, sometimes it's nice to just have a game that you can pull up in right? all the periods of boredom on these two happen rainy weekends. So I know. It's supposed to pour. All right. But on that note, what are we doing here today? We're going to be talking about the linear aerospike engine. I love the aerospike. I'm really excited to talk about this. Yeah, me too. It's it's such a fun... It was a fun topic to research and a fun topic to just learn about in school when we were learning aerospace. Yeah, I feel like I had always heard about it, but I had never, and I had touched upon it um, in school and just in everyday work lives as aerospace engineers, but I didn't know that much detail about its development and exactly how it worked. So what exactly are we doing here today? So we're going to talk about what the linear aerospike engine is and you know we'll start with like a high level overview of what's a rocket engine what's a nozzle how does all that work and that'll be real quick and then we'll just do a deep dive great 
Yeah. Sounds good. So I'm Anna. And I'm Henna. And we're aerospace engineers. Heck yeah. And this is... But it is a rocket science. Do you want to do that part again? Yeah, let's do that. All right. And this is... But it is a rocket science. And we're aerospace engineers, and we're going to talk to you about the linear aerospike engine today. All right, Hannah, do you want to give us a little bit of an engine and nozzle 101? Yeah. So a rocket engine uses a nozzle to accelerate hot exhaust to produce thrust, as described by Newton's third law. So if we think back to our basics, phys- basic physics classes, you'll remember Newton's third law of motion as for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So the amount of thrust produced by the engine depends on the mass flow rate that you're getting through the engine, um, the exa- and then the exit velocity of the flow and the pressure at the exit of the engine. So these three flow variables are all determined by how that rocket nozzle is designed. And a nozzle is a relatively simple device. It's a specifically shaped tube through which hot gases flow. Typical nozzle configurations um, are of a convergent divergent type. So they're specifically referred to as the CD nozzle, convergent divergent. And in a CD rocket nozzle, hot exhaust leaves the combustion chamber and it converges down to the minimum area or throat of the nozzle. That's where that uh, nozzle shape is choked. The throat is chosen to choke the flow and set the mass flow rate through this nozzle system. And the flow in the throat is sonic, which means the Mach number. And the Mach number, for those of you who don't know, is the ratio of the speed of a body to the speed of sound. And in the throat of a nozzle, this is typically equal to 1. Downstream of the throat, where the geometry of the nozzle diverges, the flow is expanded to a supersonic Mach number. And that depends on the area ratio of the exit to the throat. And that's a pretty uh, important number when looking at nozzle physics, the area ratio. The expansion of the supersonic flow then causes the static pressure and temperature to decrease from the throat to the exit. So the amount of expansion also determines the exit pressure and temperature. That was awesome. Yeah. Man, that really brought me back to my (laughs) introductory... (laughs) Like incompressible and compressible fluids classes, dynamics. Yeah, Yeah. that's all. A little bit of PTSD from those exams. Darn, those were tough. Some of those were tricky, but classic CD nozzle problems. Yeah, (laughs) good stuff. All right, so now um, let's talk about the linear aerospike. Yes. So now that we all have a pretty basic understanding of what a rocket engine is and what a nozzle is, let's go ahead and do a little deep dive into. Um, some specific nozzle and rocket engines. So we're going to talk about the linear aerospike engine, but to begin, we're going to go ahead and give a little bit of an overview of the bell nozzle. So the bell nozzle is the most common um, nozzle design used in rocket engines. So that would be the CD nozzle that you referenced earlier. Exactly. So if you, if you want to imagine a bell nozzle, it's exactly, it looks exactly as it sounds like a bell with the exhaust coming out of the opening of the bell. And now to describe the aerospike shape, take that bell nozzle and you turn it, turn it inside out and flip it upside down. So you get this really funky shape that looks like a trapezoidal prism. 
another way to another fun way of thinking about it is think about taking giant skateboarding ramps you know like the ones you see on the tv show american ninja warrior that uh the runners have to run up with take those skateboarding ramps and push them back to back against each other and that's a fun way of looking at thinking about the shape of a linear aerospace engine that's really cool yeah and if you're still having a bit of trouble imagining this just google it like it'll be the first image that shows up um so how how does the exhaust the work for this linear air spike? So instead of the gases coming out from the inside of a structure like they do in a bell nozzle, you have the gases uh, being generated on the outside along the ramps of the air spike, the top of the ramps. So surrounding the perimeter of these ramps is a series of small combustion chambers. And these chambers shoot out hot gases along the ramp's outside surface to produce thrust along the length of the ramp. So does that mean there is no, like, outer wall containing the gases? Like, when I think of a standard CD nozzle engine, the, the like, you know, gases, you see the fire plume right. coming out of this metal bell. Right. So this would mean that there is no outer wall containing those combustion gases. Exactly. So like, the, like what you talked about, a CD nozzle... Uh, those combustion gases are restricted by that circular wall. And for a linear aerospike, the atmospheric pressure acts as that invisible wall, uh, constricting these gases. That's really cool. So I think that's actually why it's called an aerospike, is because the air serves as the outer chamber wall. Yes, I believe, yeah, I, I believe that. At least that's what I read on the internet. Then it's probably true, <laughs> because everything on the internet is true. Obviously, if nothing else, it sounds cool. It does sound cool. And the the reason why this nozzle is really cool is because of how efficient it is. I'm sorry. Uh, the reason why the linear air spike is cool is because of how efficient it is. Why is it so efficient? So it's actually going back to your previous comment about how that air, the atmospheric air acts as the chamber wall for the linear air spike. Um, because it acts as the chamber wall, you do not get overexpansion and underexpansion of the hot gases that are being shot out of the engine. So in, let's go ahead and describe uh, overexpansion and underexpansion. So when fuel is burned inside an engine, the hot gases that are created exhaust through the nozzle, uh, through a typical like bell nozzle or a CD nozzle to produce thrust. So that thermal energy of combustion is converted into kinetic energy. And the behavior of how the exhaust gases expand is based on the pressure of these gases and the pressure of the external environment. So if we were to take a standard bell nozzle at sea level, where the pressure of the atmosphere is greater than the pressure of the exhaust, we're going to get overexpansion. So what overexpansion looks like is uh, the exhaust gases are pinched. So the circumference um, of these gases is less than the circumference of the nozzle itself. Oh, okay. So that makes sense. Yes. So it's, um, so they're not allowed to... I'm sorry. Hold on. Okay, I'm trying to picture this in my head. Yeah, no so problem. So effectively, overexpansion. So you're saying 
it comes out, but there's so much atmospheric pressure on these gases that it's being compressed too tightly together. Exactly. So it can't expand to the whole nozzle area. Yeah. Okay, I get it. That's really interesting. Yeah. Sorry, that took me a second to connect those dots in my head. And it definitely helps when you have pictures in front of you. Yeah, we will find some online and we will put them on our website. We'll link them, yes. Yeah, we link them. You can also put this into Google yourself if you want some more cool images yeah. out there to really understand it you just need to take a look at it like a couple pictures and then yeah. it, the pic it just becomes so much clearer in your head that's really neat yeah but um like you said like the uh the atmospheric pressure compresses against the pressure of the exhaust and why this is a problem it goes back to the point i made earlier where the thermal energy is converted to kinetic energy of the exhaust in this situation in a situation of overexpansion. Uh, we're losing performance because there is wasted wall space that is oh. not being used in the generation of thrust. So in that situation, it's like wasted mass um, that that structural wall of the nozzle that is not making contact with the exhaust. That's wasted mass. So that's oh. an inefficiency of the overexpansion. That makes a lot of sense. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, now, to, now, if we were to describe underexpansion, take the same bell nozzle and put it high up in the air like you just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Think about it. So let's take this engine and put it up, say we're at 20 kilometers above the ground. Okay. Um, the pressure of the atmosphere is now going to be less than the exhaust pressure. So now you can imagine the exhaust gases expanding further out past the structure of the nozzle. And this is underexpansion. Okay, so it's just the opposite of it was previously. Before, they were too pinched together, and exactly. now it has too much room. Exactly. Because there isn't enough atmospheric pressure on it. You got it. You know, A-plus student right here. Heck yeah. <laughs> There's nobody else here, but yet I need to be the best one. <laughs> we like to win. <laughs> Don't we all? Um... And then there's the point of neither under nor over expansion. And that's when the standard bell is at the optimum altitude. The Goldilocks altitude. The Goldilocks. I love that. (laughs) What is it? it Not too cold, not too hot, (laughs) just the perfect place. Right. Earth is the Goldilocks planet. Yes. That's right. It is. Yeah. When we look for uh, planets in the habitable zone. Yeah, exactly. So then That's Earth the is called the nickname the Goldilocks planet. Yeah. I remember that because I got that question wrong in trivia once. <laughs> <laughs> now we'll never get it now wrong. Now we'll never get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, so then we have, then the, the bell nozzle is optimized for one altitude. So the a design that is optimized by engineers for one pressure or altitude is called a point design. And the engineers come to term with performance losses at all other altitudes um, other than the optimum altitude. Now, what's really, really cool about the linear aerospike is the fact that there is no underexpansion or overexpansion. That's cool, because there's no outer wall for the gases to go past or not exceed. Like, they can't exceed it, but they also can't not fill in the space, because there is no outer wall. Yeah, isn't that exciting? That's so cool. <laughs> That's so neat. That... It's like when that concept clicked in my brain. Oh, all right. It was just really exciting. It's like, why limit ourselves? Exactly. We have no outside barrier. So the linear aerospikes exhaust isn't constrained by the diameter of a nozzle. Because the exhaust, like Anna mentioned earlier, just flows down the ramp and there's no wall constricting its expansion. 
Its exhaust is free to expand to match the atmospheric pressure as the engine climbs altitude. Therefore, it is altitude compensating. Cool. That's really neat. It is really neat because then we're not suffering any performance losses um, anywhere. You don't have this one Goldilocks altitude. Exactly. Every altitude can be tuned to be the optimal functionality. Right. That's neat. Right. That's really cool. Man, I love science. Science is great. I love science too. So then with this... Okay. I'm thinking here. So would this make, I feel like that would result in this engine being a really good fit for an SSTO or a single stage to orbit, because then you could get the most efficiency out of one engine. Because when you have a multi-stage vehicle, I'm going to use a Saturn V as a reference, just because yeah. I feel like it's the most commonly known multi-stage vehicle. space vehicle. Right. Every stage is a different engine, or different numbers of engines. So um, the different at different altitudes, you get a different engine, which has different performance capability. Exactly. When you have a single stage to orbit, you don't have the chance to have different engines. Right. So just having the one linear aerospike would allow you to get the most efficiency out of the one engine at the different altitudes. And that makes sense that the linear aerospike would be a good choice for an SSTO because it's altitude compensating. Yeah. Um, there's actually a really good paper uh, written by a master's student uh, this was her thesis paper. Uh, her name is Elizabeth Lara Lash, and she writes the, in this paper, it was titled Trajectory Analysis and Comparison of a Linear Aerospike Nozzle to a Conventional Bell Nozzle for SSTO Flight. And in it, she talks about SSTOs and the propellant mass fraction. The propellant mass fraction is a, it's the portion of a vehicle's mass which does not reach its destination. So if you think about it, the lower the PMF, the propellant mass fraction, the lower it is, the better it is because it means you have more room for payload. That makes sense. Yeah. So Lash's research, actually, it looks into, she does a few simulations that looks into propellant mass fraction, and she shows that uh, PMF could actually be reduced by as much as 7% compared to the conventional rocket design. Um, if you were to take a linear aerospike and use it for an SSTO. 7% is incredibly significant. It's like, incredibly significant. I feel like yeah. I need to, because I'm sure if you're listening to this and you don't have a lot of uh, knowledge of common propellant mass fractions, which I don't know why you would have unless it's <laughs> right. what you do <laughs> for a living. what you studied for um, years. Yes, and it's what you do for a living. Um, propellant mass fractions right now are actually like a really competitive portion of a rocket design. Yep. And I think most of them hover between 91 and 93%. Yes, exactly. So a 7% difference is huge. Huge, Right. Like that is... Pretty cool. Very significant. 7% doesn't sound a lot. That is incredibly significant. It especially is. when you compare that to the overall mass of a rocket, a lot of which are in the ranges when fueled of like 400, 500, 600,000 pounds. Yeah. So 7% Absolutely. of that is a lot. But exactly. that's not quite how that math works. But anyway, that's a lot. It's a lot. Um, so if you want to check out this paper where Lash goes into her math about this, we will have a link to it on our website. So you can that's awesome. you can check that out after uh, you listen to our podcast. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank Lash. you, Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, and another thing that makes the linear aerospike engine really cool is how the direction of flight is controlled. 
the direction of flight is controlled by varying thrust from engine to engine uh, and and side to side in those combustion chambers that line the pr uh, perimeter of the linear aerospike engine. And what's really cool about that is that it, it eliminates the additional engineering needed for thrust vectoring that you'll typically see for a rocket engine that has a CD nozzle type, uh, like the Bell nozzle. So it actually eliminates the added need for gimbals, hydraulics, flex lines, and this this helps with two things. One, reduction of mass, and two, it makes the aerospike more maintainable. But yeah, so the linear aerospike is really cool. There's a lot of positive attributes about it. Um, but Anna, can you can you tell us about the developmental history of this engine? Yeah, I would love to, but I think first we should take a quick break. That sounds wonderful. Let's awesome. take a break. <laughs> Let's do it. We'll be back in a minute. All right, so let's talk about the history. Yes. You ready, Hannah? I'm so ready for this, Anna. I was born ready for this. <laughs> All right, so the first Aerospike was developed by Rocketdyne in the 1960s. So I was trying to figure out exactly what year it was developed. I was able to find one article that said it was started in 1965, but I was only able to find one article. So I'm going to say the 60s, possibly 1965. So what it was, it was designed to be a variant of the J2 engine. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because there were five on the S2, which was the second stage of the Saturn V, and then there was one on the S4B, which was the third stage of the Saturn V. So this aerospike was intended to be able to be exactly swapped out with the J2. So they were, for the next generation of the Saturn V, they'd pull out the J2 and they'd put in these aerospikes. So were they identical? <laughs> they were not. So they were toroidal aerospikes. So they were not identical to the J2, but they had similar similar operating conditions. Gotcha. So what these were called were the J2, so J2, T. Actually, I'm going to start that over. Excuse me. Go for it. So what these were called, it was the J-2, so the J2, T, as in toroidal, dash 200K. And then there was the J2T, dash 250K. And what that means is it's 200 kilopounds of thrust and 250 kilopounds of thrust. So you might be a little confused. You're like, what's a kilopound? And effectively saying, for the case of 200K, saying 200,000 pounds, a force can be kind of a lot. So we cheat with the English units and we use the SI prefixes. So kilo to be a thousand. So what the T stands for, as I mentioned earlier, is toroidal. So this looks like a spike. So if you have Googled or looked at the website and seen a picture of the linear aerospike engine, you might be confused. Because it does not look like a spike at yeah. all. And you're not wrong. This actually confused me too. Because I just jumped in to immediately looking at the linear aerospike. Mm -hmm. And I didn't... I had to backtrack my way out to the toroidal. And then I realized why it's called a spike. <laughs> so effectively, the toroidal does look like a spike. Yeah, I was confused initially when I googled it too. Because I was like, this is not pointy. It doesn't How look like a spike, a spike at all. Right. Yes, and it's because of the toroidal aerospike. Gotcha. So the exhaust flow is directed from a toroidal shape around the exterior of the nozzle towards the spike. This results in a flow that expands the optimal diameter as local pressure varies. So again, it's altitude compensating, as Henna gave us a lovely definition of earlier. Oh, thank you. They're often truncated spikes, meaning it doesn't go all the way to the pointy tip, because that can get result in an incredibly long engine. 
Another thing that I came across when I was doing research was the term plug nozzle. And this is really confusing me because an aerospike is not a plug nozzle. A plug nozzle is an entirely different class of engines that we will probably might talk about in another episode. So effectively, the toroidal aerospike is sometimes called a plug nozzle because if you look at the picture, the spike and the combustion chamber, it kind of looks like a plug, but a plug nozzle is an entirely different thing. A plug nozzle is kind of like a nozzle in a nozzle. So if you were to think about like your hose, like if you look at one of those old school hoses that kind of looks like a gun. Mm-hmm. If you look, so you have the handle on it. When you start the water and you push the handle in, you're pulling in that interior part and that's what lets all the water out. And if you let the handle out a bit, a little bit, that interior part starts to go out a little bit. So you get less flow. Right. You know what I mean? So that velocity of the flow will decrease. Change, change. as you like throttle that interior part. Right. That's a plug nozzle. That's, That's a very yeah. basic dev, uh, metaphor. Not metaphor. It's a real thing. Very basic example. It's a really good example. It, Thank you. it paints a good picture in my brain. I thought so too. I wish I had come up with it myself, but uh, somebody else mentioned it on the internet. I thought it was really smart. Gotcha. But it is not a plug nozzle, just so you know. Got it. So don't use plug nozzles to reference <laughs> aerospikes. Exactly. If you learn nothing else from this episode... <laughs> take that with you take that with you you'll find you'll find yourself being very respected in your when you when you can bring that fact up yeah i would think you were cool so ground tests were conducted but development was cut short after apollo i found this really great article on the smithsonian website also i highly recommend the smithsonian website they have a lot of great stuff on there even just about not even just about um aerospace lots of things but effectively i found this article we'll link it in our sources and there was a great quote in there that said For many Americans, landing on the moon ended the space race. Effectively, after we landed on the moon, we had completed this goal that we had worked so hard to achieve. A lot of interest in space was lost. And the... So the Saturn V program lost funding. And this aerospike was never flown. However, that was not the end of the aerospike. On July 2nd, 1996, NASA competitively selected Lockheed Martin for a government industry partnership to design, build, and fly the experimental X-33 rocket plane. And so what happened here was that this X-33 would have a linear aerospike. And what the X-33 was, was it was a half-scale vehicle, and it was expected to feature a lifting body shape, a new aerospike rocket engine, and a rugged metallic thermal protection system. What this was intended to do was it was supposed to provide a proof of concept for technologies required for a future reusable launch vehicle. So the full-size follow-up to the X-33, as I mentioned earlier, the X-33 was half-size. Its full-size big brother was supposed to be VentureStar. On a fun note, RLVs actually do currently exist. Uh, We will talk about that later on in the episode. So the X-33 was supposed to be an unpiloted vehicle. It was going to be launched vertically like a rocket, but landed horizontally like an airplane. Very similar to the shuttle. And it was expected to be capable of reaching an altitude of approximately 50 miles and speeds of more than Mach 11. So now that we know the Mach is. <laughs> Perfect. Mach 11's a lot. <laughs> that is a lot. That's that's very, very much. Um, a full-scale RLV would increase reli- reliability dramatically and lower the cost of putting a pound of payload into space from the current figure of $10,000 to $1,000. Wow. So this was $10,000 at the time. So wow. I think I said earlier that was 1996. Yes. So I did a little bit of research because I was kind of curious about this. Um, all right. So it was $415 million per launch of the space shuttle. And from what I understand, this was just per launch. This does not include all the previous developmental and labor costs. $450 million 
is a lot of money when you're putting in the context of the year of the first shuttle, which was 1981. And so effectively, on average, it could fly 50,000 pounds of payload. That puts it about $9,000 per pound, which is pretty close to that $10,000 per pound figure. So what the X-33 was intended to do was to lower that to 1,000. Wow. Which is really impressive. That's an incredible drop in price. Yeah, that's that's a lot. It makes space significantly more accessible. Yeah. Uh, do you have any idea of what that would cost, what it would cost to fly a pound of payload now? Yeah. So actually, I picked what I thought would be the most popular current payload delivering vehicle, and that would I think would be the SpaceX Falcon. So right now, it's $57 million per launch. Again, I do not believe this can include... This is just the cost to launch the vehicle. This does gotcha. not include any previous developmental costs. And then it can fly 23,000 pounds of payload. So that's $57 million. That is almost $390 million less yeah. than what it costs to fly the shuttle. That's amazing. Which I think is a really great testament to how, fly, how far space flight has come. However, it could carry less than half the payload. But the thing is, it carries less than half the payload for way less than half the cost of the shuttle yeah so it's really neat to see how far space has become uh has space technology has come it's really impressive and so it's about 20 it's a little bit less than 2500 dollars per pound of payload wow which in and of itself is an incredible drop that's an incredible feat yeah and then the x33 wanted to even lower that because that's 2500 dollars today yes and we're talking about 10 almost ten thousand dollars for a pound of payload Back during shuttle time. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really impressive. Like, right. So if you were to take into account of inflation, that $10,000 number would be much higher today. Yes. And that $1,000 number is probably pretty close to that $2,500. Right. Yeah. So it's pro- it actually kind of nailed what the X-33 was intending to do. However, we're going to keep talking about the X-33 and the Venture Star. So $1 billion was spent through 1999, with about 80% coming from NASA and additional money contributed from private companies. So the goal was to have a first flight by 1999, an operating space vehicle by 2005. However, this would never come to be. So the X-33 program, along with Venture Star, was canceled in early 2001 after the project had problems with the carbon composite hydrogen fuel tank. Um, what was wrong with the composite tank? So I had to dig a lot to figure this out. Um, I ended up finding it on a, like a composite newsletter, uh-huh. uh, which was really interesting. So effectively, it sounded like what the problem was was that the tank was a honeycomb structure. So the interior was a honeycomb structure. So there was an outer wall, this honeycomb structure. Cool, yeah. And then bounded to that was an inner tank liner. And so they did tests that were simulated under mission conditions, so temperature, pressure, and loads. Mm-hmm. And what would happen was that the inner liner would come away and delaminate from that honeycomb structure. So it would actually, from what I understand, the inner liner would actually remain in one piece. That whole thing would just like slide off. Wow. So it's kind of, yeah, which was kind of crazy. And then it would also cause micro cracking on the outside layer. Yeah. So there was just a lot of problems. Um, Part of this is due to the fact that composite materials have higher thermal conductivity than metal. And so normally these tanks, uh, a lot of flight tanks are aluminum. So effectively what was happening was that inner layer was separating. And so the obvious, I'm sure you're all wondering to be like, well, why didn't they just switch to a non-composite tank? And the reason they were unable to do that was a non-composite tank would weigh too much, making the project unfeasible. So in the world of spaceflight, and especially SSTOs, mass is incredibly important. And in order to make an SSTO feasible, it has to be really light. I saw some figures online for the X-33 saying 
that the empty mass of it needed to be 10% of what the mass of it was fueled in order to get to deliver a significant amount of payload to orbit. Oh, wow. So it was not able to get payload to orbit unless it had a really low mass. That is incredible. Yes, it is really impressive. But the non-composite tanks weigh too much. And it makes a lot of sense that you want to be able to, um, if you have too much mass, then you won't be able to carry as much fuel as you need. And especially if you're going from ground to orbit, you're exactly. going to need a solid amount of fuel. Exactly. Yes. It's the same reason why airplanes carry just enough fuel to make it to your destination. They obviously add in <laughs> enough to, like, they add in <laughs> enough to account for issues, but they don't fill the tank every trip they take. Because the more fuel you have, the more mass you're carrying. Yeah. So the same thing goes for these rockets. Yeah. To be like, the more fuel you have, the more weight you have. You can't avoid carrying fuel, so you need to get the mass, the dry mass, without fuel as low as you can. Yeah. I really like that comparison to aircraft. Thanks. I feel like uh, since we work in space, we don't talk about airplanes a lot. However, we also still think airplanes are incredibly cool. Yes. I love flying. (laughs) Planes are awesome. They are really cool. So what ended up happening was that NASA stated technology was not advanced enough for the design. And so then this is just kind of a fun fact I found when I was looking at X-33 and Venture Star. Yeah. Um, In popular culture, so you feel like whenever you read a Wikipedia article, like, uh, I don't know, if you're reading about anything. So it can be like Spider-Man, and then there'll be a section at the bottom that will be like, in popular culture. (laughs) So this made me laugh. Yeah. So the in popular culture section for Venture Star is... That in the television television series, <laughs> in the television series, Star Trek Enterprise, an operational Venture Star space plane, is included in the opening credits as part of the history of human spaceflight. Very cool. Which is cool. I thought that was neat because that never actually happened. Yeah. Also, unfortunately, uh, Star Trek. Well, we don't know. That would be the future. It could happen. It could. That's true. Who's to say? Who's to say? Um, Anna, what about like how does that technology stand today? So interestingly enough, actually on September 7th, 2004, Northrop Grumman and NASA engineers unveiled a liquid hydrogen tank that was made of carbon fiber composite material that demonstrated the ability to hold up to the simulated launch conditions that the other, the X-33 tank failed. So they were able to create the composite tank that previously failed in the original X-33 Venture Star design. Oh, wow. Yes. However, something to note is that this tank was a simple cylinder. It very much is like, it's almost, it's like, it's like a, an ellipse. Like it's flat and wide. The shape of the... Venture Star and X-33. So their tanks were like flat and wide. Gotcha. They weren't just simple cylinders, which causes an increase of pressure and loads. So it... This, what they demonstrated was just a simple cylinder. It was not the complicated geometry of the X-33 Venture Star tanks. And then when you say they recreated the material, so they used the same honeycomb uh, and liner materials? I don't know if it was the same design, but it was a composite tank. Okay, okay. So they were able to make a composite tank that could hold up to the conditions that the original X-33 composite tank could not. Gotcha. I couldn't find a ton about the design. Um, however, it's probably out there. I will yeah. put a link. We'll put a link to this article in the show notes. Right. And I would assume, like, this is also 2004. There yes. must have been a, a lot more research that went into finding um, materials or just the way things are laminated together. Yeah. 
that would improve the structural integrity of exactly i um i got stuck in a hole about this and then i realized that this was not an episode about composites <laughs> there is a ton of information out there about this if you have any interest in composites as a field it's a really cool field it was actually um part of the reason why the original x-33 tank failed was because composites was such a field that was in their infancy at the time yeah and most of the uh, there was not a lot of technological experience with composites on the team for the x-33 and venture star yeah so that's part of the reason why it failed however in 2004 they were able to create a composite tank that passed the conditions that's awesome it is really cool but i couldn't find anything about composite tanks now and i was actually a little bit curious if they were used in aircraft because a lot of times things that are used on aircraft they're used in aircraft first and then they kind of migrate to space vehicles because aircraft is a like the gradual stepping stones. Right. Like it's a flight environment, but it it experiences less extreme conditions than space flight. Right. So you I, iterate over that and then we get to space exactly. flight. <laughs> Iteration is a really good word for that. Um, so what I was curious, I was like, do they use composite tanks in aircraft? They don't. They're mostly aluminum. And this is in part, if we throw it back to when I was talking about how composites have a much higher thermal conduction rate than even metal does, mm-hmm. there's actually a lot of risk for fire. Ooh. Because they can transmit heat so quickly. That makes sense. Yeah. So they, which is a bummer. And they're doing a lot of work to try to figure out how to make that work because composites are much lighter yes. than the aluminum counterparts. Yes. And the less weight you have, the more payload you can carry. The more payload. Right. So then this brings us into some lessons learned. Effectively, the development of the J2 toroidal aerospike engine was cut short due to NASA's lack of funding. So I think this is actually a really good connection to today. So at the time, there was this, there was the space race, you know, very famous. It was the desire to get to the moon. And we fought so hard to get to the moon. And there was all this excitement about getting to the moon. And then once we got to the moon, this excitement kind of dropped off. And when that excitement dropped off, so did the money. And I think this connects today very much in this, like, Mars kind of attitude we have now. I feel like you see all these companies, I think Boeing's doing it, SpaceX is doing it. Being like, we're going to get to Mars. Right. And we cannot let our passion for space drop off once we get to Mars. There is so much more of space out there, which you can see in the amazing pictures from the Hubble telescope. What is it? Uh, There's a, but there's another one out there. Was it Karen? I think that's what it's called. Karen? No, I don't remember. Kepler? Kepler. Thank you. You can see all these pictures of what is out there in the universe, and it is so much more than just the moon and Mars. And I think we need to keep excitement for space going. Yeah, absolutely. Like I can, like you said in the history, there was this burst of technological advancement in a short period of time because the money yes. was there, the excitement was there. So it makes a lot of sense. Like let's keep that excitement surrounding space. More money yeah. to space. And so much technology that was developed for space travel then became adaptable to use in people's homes. Right. Like, I don't even think we could pinpoint just how much technology we have today that was originally, um, which uh, concepts were originally developed for space travel, for right. the shuttle, for the Saturn V. NASA actually has a term for that. It's spin-off technology. So if you go to the NASA website and look for spin-off technologies, you can find multiple pages that describe how space technology has benefited our everyday technology yeah. on cell Earth. phones is a really good one. Yeah. Like, um, which, let me, I'm reading my notes off my cell phone right now, so I'm very grateful. <laughs> so it, it's just, I mean, we got to keep excitement for space alive. 
So then I think another just interesting point to put out there would, would reviving the concept of the X33 slash VentureStar be worthwhile? So as I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of reusable space vehicles that are starting to be able to deliver payload to orbit at an inexpensive cost. So would it be worth reviving this idea of like an SSTO? I don't know. That's something for you all to think about yourself. Yeah. So Hannah, I think, do you want to talk to us about the future? Yeah, let's talk about the future. Do you want to take a quick break first? Yeah, let's take a break. That sounds lovely. (laughs) That does sound lovely. I'm always up for a break. (laughs) All right, we're back from our break. Ooh, I can't wait to hear about the future, Hannah. (laughs) what's gonna happen in the future who knows tell us i will so before we start talking about the future it's important to understand that like anna went through the developmental history uh we know that there are no large-scale aerospikes that have been fully flight tested and it would require a lot of upfront investment today uh to get those aerospikes up to being flight tested and it would be a huge risk when developing a flight program So I was actually looking online and I read that SpaceX had looked into using aerospikes in the beginning of their development, but it was too risky when setting up a commercial space program. Yeah, I can especially imagine that when it's a company based off of investors. Exactly. Because investors would be hesitant to put money into something that has a zero success rate up to this point. Right. Like there's no flight history for the linear yeah, aerospike. That makes sense. Um, it's still a bummer, but it makes sense. It's a bummer. Meanwhile, it's like we have this technology that's worked before. We know how we have successfully used convergent divergent nozzles and standard rocket engines. And there's a lot of experts out there on them. Exactly. So, right. So taking on this new technology risk would mean a lot of time in research, upfront costs into research, manufacturing, processes, and therefore you're risking profits if it didn't work out. But so regardless, there are a few companies out there who are working uh, with aerospike engines. And one of them is Firefly Aerospace. Yeah, they're back now, right? Yeah, they are. They used to be called Firefly Space Systems, and then they went out of business, but uh, Firefly Aerospace was created by New Sphere Ventures when they bought the assets of Firefly Space Systems. Nice. Welcome back, Firefly. Yeah, welcome back. So poking around the Firefly Aerospace, Aerospace website, I found that they're working on a rocket plane called the Firefly Gamma, which is planned to have two aerospike engines for their first stage. So the phrase rocket plane, I think the most common one we know of is the space shuttle. Right. So it'd be one that launches vertically and lands horizontally. And lands like a plane. Lands like a plane. And the Firefly Gamma is planned to have uh, two stages. And they said that their vision is to be able to use any airport to land. That's really cool. I love that. So right now, if you look into how much development goes into launch and landing pads of space vehicles, it is an incredible amount of development. Very expensive. And it is very expensive. Just the amount of cement that has to be poured for some of these. Right. And then they need flame deflectors because you have these incredible engines. You can't just, you have to control that exhaust somehow. Exactly. That's really neat that you can land it at any airport. Yeah. That would bring cost way down. That would be just incredible to see in our lifetime, like go to any airport instead of just seeing airplanes land. Now you're seeing rocket ships land (laughs) in front of you. Yeah. 
I would totally get there early, go, get to the airport early. <laughs> look out the window. That look out the really window fun. for an hour before my flight. So Firefly Aerospace also had the Firefly Alpha, and I think this is a remnant of Firefly Space Systems. And the Firefly Alpha will no longer be using aerospikes. Uh, its new first stage will actually be using a pump-fed engine using RP-1. Um, RP-1 is a very common rocket fuel. It's a refined form of kerosene, which is a hydrocarbon liquid and locks. Yeah, if you oxygen. ever see like jet fuel or, I mean, rocket fuel, excuse me. Uh, the standard would be kerosene. Yeah. And besides Firefly Aerospace, we have ARCA. And ARCA is really cool. It's a partnership between ARCA Space Corporation, which is a U.S. corporation that was established in 2014 in New Mexico, and ARCA NGO, which is a a European nonprofit established in 1999. And that ARCA NGO is in Romania. Okay. That I was really confused when I uh, was <laughs> just doing research on the aerospike because I saw something talking about this Romanian space company, and then it would talk about New Mexico. And yeah, I was like, is it the same company? I was also equally confused when I was looking up, and then I was just like, I just got to go to Arca's website, and I scrolled all the way to the bottom, and in tiny font there was an about us, and I was like, okay, let's figure this out. That's cool. Okay, that makes sense because I was like, I don't understand. <laughs> it's like those colleges that it's like. Um, it'll be like the University of Las Vegas, Pennsylvania. And you're like, <laughs> what? Where are you? Are you in Las Vegas or Pennsylvania? Like- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, right. So the ARCA NGO, Romania, the one in Romania, is actually the one uh, developing the aerospike engine technology for both the Demonstrator 3B and Haas 2CA rockets. And what's cool about the Haas 2CA is that it's an SSTO, single stage to orbit rocket. Cool. Yeah. I think single stage to orbit rockets are just so interesting. I think they really need to. Um, and what the Haas 2CA will be used for is nano and microsatellite launches. And it'll use a linear aerospike engine that they've called the Executor Aerospike. That's a really good name. <laughs> it's a fun name. <laughs> That's a, I like that a lot. It's a very powerful name. It is a powerful name. That was a good adjective. Thanks. Uh, And the website states that the company anticipates using 30% less fuel than traditional rocket engines because they won't have the same loss in performance um, since the aerospike is altitude compensating. That's a lot. That's impressive. 30% less fuel. If that is, if that, if they can actually achieve that, that will be amazing. Yeah. That that is on the order of like tens of thousands of pounds. Yeah. Nice. Um, And the rocket will have no gimballing system. Uh, they're going to achieve thrust vectoring by controlling, uh, by throttling eight out of the 16 combustion chambers used for the aerospike. That's cool. Um, something else that was really cool was that ARCA has a series of YouTube videos. Like, they have 30 or more, 30 and more YouTube videos. That's cool. Yeah. And their YouTube videos are pretty short and sweet, and they go into the developmental progress of their rocket engines, um, their testing, as well as just principles of rocketry. So if you want to check that out, we'll have a link to that in our sources on our website for this episode. That's awesome. Well, that wraps it up for the future section, Anna. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. I don't have anything else to add. Me neither. So I guess that's time for sources. Mm-hmm. So um, I had a bunch of sources I used. A main one I used was the NASA website. There, We will list all of our sources on our website, but just as kind of a quick overview of some of the sources I used. Use a lot of the MASA website. 
I looked at Wikipedia as a good uh, platform to jump off of. As I mentioned earlier, I found that really cool article from the Smithsonian website. I also found a really interesting video on YouTube. It was the original Rocketdyne promo video cool. for the line- the J2T. I would highly recommend you look at it. It was really neat. And then I just used a lot of articles from the NASA website. And then I found this cool article from Composites World about what was going on with the composite tanks. Nice. Um, I also used Wikipedia as it, a good jumping point. It's a really good springboard. It is. Um, and then what's nice about Wikipedia articles is that they have all the references yes. listed on the bottom. It's and then nice. you go do a deep dive into those. It's really helpful. I also use the Arca Space and Firefly Alpha uh, company websites. And we'll have links to those. And um, I, too, used a NASA Marshall Center um, fact sheet for the linear aerospike engine. I'll have a link for that as well. And then uh, Elizabeth Lash's paper. Thank you, Elizabeth, for the PMF information. I'll have a link for that in our section as well. That's awesome. So uh, in the meantime, check us out on social media. You can go to our website, um, butitisrocketscience.com, and our Instagram, butitisrocketscience. And then please message message us ideas for future episodes. Uh, shoot us an email. You can do that on our website. Or you can DM us on Instagram. Yeah. Comment on our posts. Let us know what you want to hear about or let us know what you thought was interesting. Yes, absolutely. We have some cool episodes coming your way. We're really excited about the topics that we've chosen. Yeah, because it's 2019, so we can't ignore the 50th anniversary of the lunar module landing on Apollo on the moon for Apollo 11. So we might be talking about that. Perfect. Not to spoil I'm the surprise. I'm so excited. Yeah, I think we have some cool targets coming up. But yeah, message us ideas. We're always excited to learn and we will prepare episodes if there is a lot of excitement around a specific topic. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be a conventional aerospace topic. Yes. Like if you are interested in, I don't know, something crazy to be like, what is the possibility of this rocket I saw in a sci-fi movie becoming reality? Right. Like, we could talk about that. We could totally talk about that. Um, Or we could talk about, like, if you really want to know about composites or 3D printing in space, we can also go into that. So let us know what you're interested in hearing. Yeah, please. We love aerospace and we want to talk about it. To talk about it. Yeah. So... Any topic you got, we'll probably also find interesting. Yep. All right. Great. You ready to wrap it up, Hannah? Yeah, let's wrap this up. All right. On that note, until until next time, time, Space Cadets, T-minus three, two, one, liftoff!